live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, here we go, everybody. Welcome to episode number 123 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, December the 11th, 2021. And my name is Jeremy Lee, and do we have a show for you tonight? But first, I want to thank last Saturday's guest, Brody the Kid, for joining us. We had a great show. Also, thanks to his father, Dennis the Dad, for joining for a little while as well. Tomorrow night, join us on Collectible Live. We'll be going live on the Collectible YouTube channel at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, check out my new series, Today's Collector, that is on the Mint Collective YouTube channel, Episodes 1 and 2 are already out. Episode three has been recorded and will be releasing soon. The latest episode, my guest was Nat Turner. Check that out on the Mint Collective YouTube channel. Also, next Saturday on the show, we will be covering the PWCC Premier Auction. Adam and Eric will be joining me as always for that. Couple of shout outs as always, guys. Channel supporter, whatnot. Check out their app for one minute auctions and buy it now shows hosted by the best breakers in the hobby most of them are on there at least they also have other collectibles including pokemon funkos metazoo comics and more i'll be doing another live stream on the whatnot platform before the end of the year so stay tuned for that also shout out as always leading up to the mint collective to collectible and the mint collective january 28th to 30th in las vegas as you know i will be there it's going to be fun come check that out it's it's poised to be an amazing event Thanks to all the podcast listeners. Thanks to all the subscribers and viewers of the channel. If you're not yet subscribed to Sports Cards Live, please take a second and hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate it. As always, your comments or questions are in play, so don't be shy. Give them to us. Let's get to tonight's guest. He started in the hobby in 1975 when his father brought home packs of 74-75 Topps Hockey. He stopped collecting in 1979 because boys will be boys and got back in 1986 when he started setting up at card shows. He opened his landmark store in 1991 with his friend Dave. The rest is history. His favorite teams are the Buffalo Sabres and the Buffalo Bills. His favorite athlete is Sabre great Rick Martin, originally and currently hailing from Buffalo, New York. Let's bring him out. Adam Martin, welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you Jeremy, doing? Jeremy, what's going on? You didn't tell me we had a theme song, Jeremy. I love Bro, it. Come on, what do you think this is here? I love it. I love it. And I'm following up Brody. I love Brody. I love that sure. kid. I see him every national, so it's going to be a tough act to follow, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, we had a good time with Brody last week. Yeah, Adam, right. I, I got, okay, first of all, we had, we, you know, last Saturday on the show, I didn't know that it was going to be you this Saturday. I've had some scheduling, shakeups. But uh, you were supposed to come on the week after. You're on tonight. I'm glad you were available. Thanks for being available. Thanks for some time the other night. You got some weather issues there. How? But I do know you were at the Sabres game last night. How was that? That was uh, great. The Sabres are a tire fire, but I I, I still love them. They uh, they 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 got a game tying goal, uh, you know, right at the end of the game, and they got called back. And in typical cursed Buffalo sports fashion, the NHL released a statement that said, oh, that should have counted. Sorry. <laughs> uh, 
that goal, that goal should have counted. So, but I had a good time. I had a few cocktails with friends and uh, had some um, some winners from our from our local store here who uh, won tickets. So it was a good time. Nice, good to yeah. hear. Good to hear. We've got a bunch of people joining us in the chat already. We'll get to them in a minute. But so before we do that, Adam, let's let's step back. Part of what I like to do is uh, you know introduce the guests to the to the audience and get to know them a little bit more on the personal level, a bit of their history. So let's talk a bit about kind of your hobby experience uh, before you open up the card show and even before you started setting up in 86 at card shows, sorry, before the card store and setting up a card shows. Well, uh, you mentioned it. Uh, my father, uh, I'm the one who actually got my family into hockey. I, my parents were both artists. They're both from the South. And if you know anything about artists from the South, they don't watch hockey. Um, but I was going to school here and, you know, in Buffalo and uh, all my little, all my little schoolmates in uh, like second grade were talking about this Buffalo Sabres, whatever they were. And I would not want to be the only kid left out. So I would come home and I would sit on the floor in our dining room and watch this, this black and white TV, this size with the ears sticking out of it, the antenna. And I'd watch the Sabres play. And my parents would be like in the family room with my brother watching whatever they were watching. And eventually, uh, you know, Sabres started to get really good uh, around that time. And uh, within a year, we were all watching it together. And I, I turned the, my parents, my brother, into hockey fans. And uh, my dad started bringing home hockey cards. I think he found them at the CVS or whatever store it was. And he'd bring them home. And uh, for the next several years, my brother and I were avid hockey card collectors. Although I've told you the story that uh, uh, we, uh, we played this great game with a marble where we knocked a marble around. So all of my... All my childhood cards were just bent dead in half up the center. A lot of PSA ones and yeah. uh, my Mike Bossy rookie, probably multiple. Every Gilbert Pro card, since he was such a, a loved saber, was just massacred. But, yeah. You know. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Gilbert Pro. I mean, he's he's definitely one of the greatest uh, sabers of all time. Uh, Dave Andrew Chuck, Dale Howard Chuck, one of my favorites, of course. McGillney had a big year there. But okay, let's uh, let's take a second. Thanks for that sort of pre-card show history. Really curious about the story behind opening Dave and Adams. Let's go to a few comments here. Uh, good evening, Troy. Episode 123. Logan Thompson says, Ep excited. Buy a lot from DNA. Welcome. Foul five ball. Frank, as always, good evening to you. Karen Verma. Great to see you. Great show. Love from Australia. Thank you so much. Birds on a bat. Good evening. Joe Perot from Santa Cruz. What is up? We got Victor. We got one for the task. We got Mike at Eastridge. Good, good evening, Mike. Birds on a bat. Rocco. Good evening to you, Rocco. Hobby Chan says, first pack I ever remember opening was a 90 upper deck pack from DNA's first shop in Toronto, in North Tonawanda, 91. Also worked for them in 01. There you go. Adam is a character. Here we go. So we're in for some entertainment tonight. Jeff McMahon, good evening to you and James, you as well. Okay, how did you how did you end up opening Dave and Adams with your friend Dave? What's the story there? So I didn't I didn't own a car uh, when I went to college. I went to University of Buffalo. I didn't have a car, and so I would actually boy I was in good shape then. I was pre ball card shape, and I would uh, I would jog. Uh, to uh, to where I could get a, a bus. I drive to the, the University of Buffalo Main Street campus to get a, catch a bus over to their other campus. And that took me up Hurdle Avenue in Buffalo, in North Buffalo, which had three card stores. And I ended up getting a part-time job in one. And I worked for cards uh, for about a year before I started doing card shows. So I was working for cards. 
and and I was buying hockey, and I was I was I shouldn't say buying. Well, I was buying with what money I, I could get, but I was being paid in football and basketball and in hockey because I at the time I felt they were undervalued. And that was true. I mean, Michael Jordan's rookie card was twenty five dollars, and I um, so I was being paid in I was being paid in cards, and that uh, that that capitalism bug really took hold when I was you could buy something for ten dollars and sell it for twenty. And that was all that was all it took. So then I started doing card shows from there. And then um, everybody, a lot of people know the story about how I was, I was going to law school. I'd taken the LSATs. I, I got a master's from UB in psychology. I was going to go to law school. I'd taken the LSATs. I was applying to schools. And I said, I need to sell my collection. And I, I have to sell it from behind the table. I can't sell it from in front of the table. And that made, gave me this great idea to open up a card store for a year. And, uh, and it's 30 years later. And I, I haven't gone to law school yet. So um, here you are, though, Adam. You're, you're you're like kind of a college dropout at this point. Well, what, yeah. <laughs> right. Where did did you have the money to open up the store? How did how were you able to sign a lease and all that? Right. So I I had uh, I'd asked a couple friends uh, who actually had semi successful jobs at that point. I was 24, 24. Yeah, that's about right. And um, and they had no interest in uh, going into the business with me. That was a mistake. And, uh, but I knew Dave from shows and, uh, and so Dave said, sure. He was finishing up at RIT. So the first half of the year we opened that store, uh, basically I had to run it, but, um, but we got $3,000 loan from uh bank from Marine Midland bank in Buffalo. Our parents had to co-sign it for us because uh, they, uh, weren't going to give Dave and I the money and the whole 3000 pretty much went into showcases and fixtures and our massive 500 square foot card emporium. I think we had enough money to buy fixtures and put your first down, your last, your security deposit. And then uh, from there, uh, the tens of dollars started just rolling in. And uh, we knew we were going to really make it big every day when we made $63. But, you know, it was a good time. Those were, those were fun years. So, I mean, here you are. You're opening up this shop. It's uh, what year is that again? 1991. Right. And I know it's funny. I opened up a shop in 1991 as well, but I lasted three years. You're you're still you're still you're still going. Um, you know, at the time, what were your what were your aspirations for the business at the time? Like, did you what what sort of dreams did you have for this, or did you think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just own a card a small card shop for the rest of my life? What were your what were your thoughts back then? Well, like I said, initially it was it was sell my collection, and if you, if you came into our store at the time. I had a pretty good relationship with one of the candy tobacco wholesalers. So I'd get my six boxes of uh, upper deck hockey or my eight boxes of pro set platinum football. So we had some unopened. We had a nice display of boxes and packs. But if you looked in the showcases, all the cards, if you flipped them over, they either had a blue sticker on the back. That was mine. Or a purple sticker on the back. That was Dave's. And we kept columns. We kept track of whose money was who. And we split it up at the end of the day because uh, – we were just selling off our stuff and having fun. And, um, and somewhere in there, I just decided that I would rather do this, uh, even though much to my parents' dismay, I was going to go into stay in the baseball card business and forego becoming a lawyer. Yeah. You know, eventually they got over it. But, um, you know, at the time, I'm not sure they were too happy. I bet. I, I bet. But I'm sure they're quite proud now. So... 
Okay, so you open up the store, and here we are, you know, 35 years later or something or, or so, 30 years later, and the show, the, the store is very successful. For anyone who's watching who may not really, let's say someone doesn't know what Dave and Adam's card world is, give quickly explain what what is what is your business? So uh we are uh, one of the largest e-commerce sellers of unopened boxes, but I think we're more than that. We have our own product line we create called Hit Parade. Um, which has been very well received. We have buyers for just about everything you can imagine from coins and toys to vintage comics, Babe Ruth autographs, vintage cards. I mean, we have our hands in most aspects of collecting. Um, And it makes it pretty interesting going into the office. You never know what someone's going to have to show me that they bought. Uh, My job is pretty boring. It's spreadsheets and talking on the phone. But uh, we have a lot of guys who have some pretty great pretty great jobs there yeah and i'm gonna ask you about that in a moment but how, how did you grow the bit i mean you went from a 500 square foot lcs simple little card shop what were some of the key catalysts that helped you grow from being again a 500 square foot shop to the largest or one of the largest uh, e-commerce yeah. players in, in the industry well, in the late 80s, uh, even before it opened the store, I was doing ads in the in the back of the Sports Collector's Digest. You know, it was pre-internet. So it was all print media. And we were, I was doing little classified ads, buying Bruce Smith rookies and Jim Kelly rookies and Dave Andertruck rookies to, to sell locally. So I was kind of used to advertising in there. Um, shortly after we opened the store, they had the NHL draft here. And I don't know if you remember, Upper Deck used to do those commemorative sheets. Mm-hmm. And so we went down to the draft just as fans and we walk in and they're handing out these commemorative sheets and we're like, holy cow. And so, you know, like the ball card dealers that we were, we started paying people $5 for their commemorative sheets. I think we had $300 at the time. I think that was our entire cash flow. And uh, we ended up buying maybe say yeah, like 50 or 60 sheets. And then we ran an ad in the SCD and I think we did them at like 35, three for a hundred. So we made like $2,000. And so that, that kind of changed our business. We went from having very little money to having an extra $2,000. And uh, so that was the first thing I, I remember. And I always tell the story because I have one of those sheets framed uh, in my office at the, at the office. Um, and then after that, uh, another thing most people don't know, Northland Stick Company. Now you're, you're a hockey guy. Northland Stick Company, they went out of business. But a couple of people who, uh, who had worked there, in, I think they were in Vermont, were from Buffalo. And uh, Northland was different than other companies. If you were Johnny Busick and you wanted to carry a Northland stick, you sent them your existing stick as a pattern stick. Maybe you were using a, I don't know, it even was back a coho, I don't know. And, uh, and they would uh, pattern their stick so they, for you. So you didn't have to bend the blade. They would send it to you all ready to go. And uh, they set up at this warehouse in Buffalo with game used Bobby Orr, game used Gordy Howe, you know, sticks. And uh, we heard about a guy was coming in selling them to us. And um, and eventually we figured out what, where they were coming from. And we went over there and bought most of them and sold those in the SCD. And so then you went from having 2000 to 15000 And then 92 Bowman came along baseball and football and hockey. And we got really involved in that, bought up a lot of that. And we got on the sports net, which is dealer net now. And it just kind of, we opened a bigger store. We, we started going to the Hawaii trade show. We were going to all the nationals. We're meeting people, running more and more ads, buying more stuff, hiring people. And we just started scaling up. 
almost always putting almost almost all of our money back in the business. I didn't I don't think I took a paycheck you could live off of till 2005 or something. But um, so it was just reinvesting, traveling a lot, meeting the right people. Uh, I think we were the first people to really get into these high end inserts, you know, that everybody that is the catalyst of everything today, this craziness. I remember telling a couple guys at Golden that the, the 97, eight Jordan autograph game jersey out of 23, which is like a two or three million dollar card now. Dave and I had six of the 23, you know, you had the precious metal green gems at Jordan that people would fall over 97, eight. I think we had four of them. You know, you look back on those late seventies, like late, late eighties or late nineties days. It was crazy. And uh, we were selling those cards for 25,000 and now they're millions. So they say you can't look back, but I, I do. when I see an auction go off and I think I might've had that card, but we should the first people to do that. We put up a really great website. We were very early on eBay, I have a certificate that looks like it's from a kindergarten where like in like one, like May, 1994 is the largest seller by volume on eBay. And I have this little certificate, like little Johnny comes home with after, you know, a good day of third grade. Um, and so, but it kind of went from there. We made some really good decisions. We traveled, we met people, uh, we embraced the internet early. And because we were dealing in all these crazy cards that are much crazier, of course, now, and we met all the manufacturers and got to know them and eventually be able to buy an open from them directly has led us to where we are today. All right. Appreciate that history. I mean, these are the things that you don't know unless you ask. So um, thanks for taking us, us through that, uh, Adam. So you mentioned, you know, going to the nationals, setting up the national. Now, when you go to the national, you see the big wax dealers, yourself included, have these huge, huge displays and layouts there. At what point at the net, because I started going to the national in about 2007 or eight. At what point in your, from your recollection, did, did you guys become like one of the biggest vendors at the show along with some of your competitors? When did the national kind of switch from being mostly singles driven to, uh, and that's an assumption by me to all these major wax displays being up, being set up. Well, it still is a, a pretty good mix for most collectors but obviously in its earlier days it was vintage vintage singles and then um, as you started moving through the late 90s like uh, the modern singles became popular the game jerseys the autograph cards those were all new and but this is a good question because i'm trying to think when i remember maybe 15 years ago we had a pretty big booth with unopened i remember atlantic city was it like 2000 and Three, we had kind of a big booth and it was a really bad show. And in fact, if uh, I don't know if Fish would tell you the story from Blowout, but I think we, we bought him out at that show. Because, uh, he had a small, <laughs> bought a lot from him at that show. Anyhow, and then um, he's done fine. He's doing all right, folks. He's not yeah. So, uh, and then uh, after that, we started doing Chicago. We started taking that bigger corporate booth. And so it's been, it's been many, many years, but I don't know the year that we all really started doing that. Uh, but it's been ourselves and Blowout and Steel City and some of the other guys um, just sending truckloads of of boxes to the Nationals so we can stack them up and stand behind them and and, and meet people, I guess. How did, I mean, part of it must be the the breaker culture, the the all the breaking activity that's going on, which kind of, I mean, in my memory, kind of really got going in the early 2010s, like the very, like 2010, 11 in there is when I remember kind of hearing about it for the first time. 
how has breaking impacted uh you know the bit the industry from your perspective and specifically uh dave and adams it's a, it's a long question. First of all, let's give a shout out to fellow Canadians of Clouts uh, and Chara, who really were the first true breaking operation. When I meet breakers, I ask them, I go, you know, who you have to thank for this is a couple couple kids from Ontario who really took this. They're not the first, but they really took it to the first uh, big steps. And I remember uh, Upper Deck telling me, hey, have you seen these kids doing this breaking thing? And I was like, oh, that's dumb. That won't work. Uh I was wrong. Um, how is breaking affected us? It's interesting. Um, there's a there's, there's a lot much longer answer than I'm than I'm going to give you. Um, but from our perspective, there are somebody asked me how many breaking customers we have. We have no idea because there's plenty of people we sell two and three boxes to that are that are likely doing Facebook breaks. No, I honestly have no idea. But we know that for the product line that we create. Uh, breakers account for about 60% of the sales of that. And it's pretty decent vo uh, volumes. And, the, and then again, of course, um, we've gotten to know a lot of the larger breakers and we know how they do things and how they've grown their businesses. And a lot of them I, I respect, uh, Leighton, Mojo, Brian Gavin down in Columbus. I mean, I, I really respect a lot of these guys. Uh, and there's there's many, many more who I, who I don't know that well, but I know their businesses. I know how well they're doing. But what it did is it, it took a, a it, it took something that was on the internet that was faceless and added a social layer to it, um, um, just like almost what we're doing right now. That just kind of changed how people could interact. And uh, I'm not sure I I didn't see that initially. I clearly see it now and how important it is. And some of these guys become incredibly successful. And we've seen Hollywood take notice, and we've seen Wall Street take notice. And it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy, you know, when I. When I talk to breakers and and they're asking me, uh, you know, they're, they're they're telling me how much Pokemon they're breaking now. You know, we we do a product uh, that that we make that, a hip rate product that's just vintage graded comics. You have no idea how well that breaks. It's, it's graded comic books. So breaking has. Uh, I certainly didn't see it. Didn't see it coming. I wasn't early to the party by any means, but. Uh, they account for a, a, a decent chunk of our revenue, and uh, and I think when we go to the event together, we'll we'll be out there in Vegas together. We'll see a lot of breakers well represented at that at that conference. Yeah, for sure. When I was mentioning a couple minutes ago that you know my earliest memories of breaking it is like in that 2010 2011 range, and I don't know for sure, but it is. I'm thinking about Clutes and Chera. That's that's yeah. what I, that's what I'm thinking yeah. about in my memory. You had them, and you had Chad Redfern. Firehand, uh, Firehand sports cards and and Irving, Manera and I mean those to me those guys to me are the original original group breakers, and it's and I remember thinking to myself like this is cool but you know the guys are pretty established there's there's probably not room for anybody else and now look at it there's what there's it seems like every day on Instagram there's a new breaker person or company that's uh, that's kind of uh, you know rolling out their business so. Well, what do you think? What do you think about this? The saturation in, in, in the space right now. Boy, we're uh, we're uh, living in uh, totally new times. Uh, if I'd seen you up in the Toronto show three years ago, and and you tell me, Adam, this is my prediction for the next three years, I would have clearly told you you were losing your mind. And uh, and and here we are again. I mentioned Wall Street. The the fact that we're the darlings of Wall Street, or you know, have been for the last. 18 months or so uh, I, it's it's staggering 
Yeah. Um, there was a time when uh, people would ask me what I do for a living, and I would, I would say, you know, I sell baseball cards. And they just think that was the dumbest thing you could ever possibly try to make a living doing. And if you tell people that now, they all have a story about someone they know who just sold a sold their cards for a hundred thousand dollars, you know, in some auction or something. It's 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 different. It's very, very different. Way different. You're right though. If I had said that to you three years ago, when I see you at the uh, at the Toronto Expo, um and, and you know what the fact that I wasn't art that I couldn't see ahead and that I didn't say that to you, it's uh you know, we'd all be much better off if we could see ahead back then. But speaking of, of the show in Toronto, we're talking about the Sport Card Expo, which is, you know, like pretty much my favorite show uh, in the world twice a year. And I see you there basically every time it feels like. And one of the, one of the best deals I do at the at the expo is when you or your team comes around because you guys are out there buying singles from the vendors. And I just want to say, like, I I've always greatly appreciated it. Um, because number one, it, 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 it's always early on in the show. So, you know, the first day of the show is often the best because you get some of, you get Dave and Adams comes by among a few others and buys a nice stack of cards. Um, it's always fun when you come by yourself. I'm, I'm, I always kind of think to myself, like, why, why is he doing this? Like, what does he see that, like, explain that a little bit. Why sometimes, you know, is it you going around then buying cards from a guy like me versus, uh, your hit parade guys? Um, well, first of all, I only do two shows. I only go to two shows. I go to Toronto and I go to the national. So I'm not going to a lot of shows. It's a, it's a it's 90 mile drive for me. It's a, one of the first shows I ever did back in, I think 93 was our first one. And, uh, so I, it has a, has a place in my collecting dealing heart. Um, I just, I just love the show. I love to go up there. Now this year I went up for Thursday. Um, but it's been a number of years, Jeremy, since I've been able to look in your showcase and buy cards because uh, now I have a team who is uh, much more educated than I am on, on what we need and what we pay. Um, but I did start off advising that group, but it's been many years and another infinitely better than I am. I now just go there to collect for myself. I come back with the goofiest things. Shoot, here, hold on. The graded Sabres cards purchased in Toronto in November. <laughs> so uh, I just love the show. I like walking around talking to friends I haven't seen. Obviously, I, I talked to you. I didn't even know you had the show, so I'm glad I ran into you because here I am. Uh, they come out of touch sometimes there, Jeremy. But I know a lot of people up there. I've known some people up there for 25 years. Uh, the distributors in Canada from Canada are usually there. I like to talk to them um go up for the day and then go back home but it's one of the first shows i ever did so i love the toronto show yeah i'm, I'm glad man same here it's it's definitely my my home show if you were to have like a home a home court type of thing it, it'd be mine for sure and uh yeah I, I can't remember the last time you were there it feels like just maybe in 2019 2018 that you were walking around buying but in any event it's always nice to uh to sell you cards so thanks for and, and it's you know what i think just so you know like seriously the as as the hobby as the vendors at the hobby like you guys are going out there and pumping money back in and that's uh that's a nice thing right i i i've always appreciated i'm sure all the other vendors that you guys do business with at the expo and the national for that matter uh, do as well talk about the national this year a little bit adam in terms of the level of commerce that you guys achieved this year like you're out buying can you say like what kind of money does a business like dave and adam spend at a national every year 
Well, we didn't have a national the year before this. And so even though, uh, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk was kind of leading the charge into investment singles and the singles market began changing in 2019, and we really never seen a national uh, like the one we saw this year. Certainly can look back at Anaheim in the early 90s, 91, 100,000 people came through and the fire department shut it down. Um, that's a legendary show. But at the time, you want to run around and buy a nice card. It was $100 and now it's $5,000. So it's a whole different world. The amount of money that changes hand at that show is this year is probably hard to estimate. But, you know, it's got to be a few hundred million dollars. And so our guys, you know, our guys spent almost $1.6 million at the show. Um, buying everything up and down. And we were there selling at the show, but mostly it's marketing for us. We're set up next to Panini and, you know, and we're meeting our customers and hoping creating new ones while all our buyers are running around like crazy people buying everything that uh, they believe that we can repack or resell. Um, it's nice because I don't, I don't really have to oversee them. Uh, they're just a good team. But yeah, so that was our, our, by far the most we've ever spent at a, at a show before. And I well, remember thanks. thinking that would probably made a cool YouTube video, but you know, maybe next year. Well, th thanks for sharing that information. That, that, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of money. And again, it just shows that you're out there kind of, the money has to move, right? And when, a, when an outfit like yours is out there pumping, you know, almost or 1.6 million into the, into the room, that's going to help a lot of people out that make the trip and that. So that's uh that's pretty awesome. Um, I'm going to go to some comments here again. I want to say hello to Albert Jones. Logan Thompson purchased a $500 box from DNA and it was arrived today. Oh, destroyed. Does he know what the procedure is for this? Yeah, sorry. Uh, you got to eat that. My apologies. You're not going to do it. No, of course. You contact customer service and we'll get that. We'll get that figured out. Good, good evening. Good evening, Axon. I'm sorry, Adam. I, I, uh, I don't usually like to be customer service for my guests when we're when we have a show. But um, but there we go. Uh, Logan, hopefully you're taken care of and I'm sure you will be. Uh, good evening to Ken from Pastime Game Time Gallery. Bought a couple 52 tops mantles from Dave and Adams. I arrived the next day. Class act all the way. Very nice game time. Joe, can we get Pro those back? Huh? Can, we, can I get those back? Yeah. <laughs> Joe Perot, in some respects, those early years were the best years in some respects. Talking about the early 90s, of course. Karen Varmas, Verma says, uh, best memorabilia you've come across, Adam. Best memorabilia piece you've ever been able to buy. I had a Tris Speaker game-worn jersey, Boston. I had that really early on in the late 80s, and I, I just think that's so rare. Hall of Famer probably wore it in 1910, something like that. So I always say that's the... To, to me, that's the best thing that I've ever owned from a, a memorabilia standpoint. Uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind. If you were to ask my all the people who work for me, they may have much different answers to that. But personally, uh, that was the best thing, that the, the best and rarest piece that I can recall ever having. Very cool. James uh, had a Northland stick, a nice blast from the past for him. Darren has a nice set of a 91 Upper Deck Baseball for you. Baseball card curmudgeon, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Terry Fortune says, very cool story that in terms of building the business. It came with a lot of work. He says you definitely downplayed the story. Did you downplay the story, Adam? Like, is it, uh, is it a little it was, bit more exciting? or? Well, it was, 
you know, I don't know. I mean, we were doing card show. We were running the store. There were card shows in Buffalo Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. You know how it was in the early nineties. It was, so you're working seven days a week. I mean, it had to have been 80 plus hours every week, year after year, after year, after year. Uh, I mean, I always loved it, but I think it probably took its toll on my, my personal relationships. And, uh, you know, now I'm very fortunate. You know, I, I think we talked yesterday. I think we have 130 people at our company now and, and I don't have to do that anymore, but it took, it took a lot of years to get to the point you can kind of relax and just kind of be in an oversight position. I certainly don't micromanage at my company. So when I see that somebody got a damaged box, I, I feel bad, but I also know it's the holidays and there's a lot of temporary help out there working at the, the shipping, the shipping companies. So I hope it wasn't my fault, but you know, we always, I'm, I'm sure we'll take care of that. Good. I'm sure you will. Uh, good evening to you, Rich. Troy says, Adam, do you still collect? And what is one card from your collection that is not for sale? Uh, none of the cards from my collection are for sale. Uh, I'm working on, uh, I've been working on a 52 set that's almost done. And uh, it's all sixes and sevens. The mantle is a seven. It's gorgeous. Um, I have a Tito six set that's just missing a couple notable names like Wagner and Plank. Maybe you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I love pre-war baseball so a lot of uh, of the caramel issues in 93 i like quite a bit um i collect beetles i collect star wars the early stuff i collect i mean i could go 80 olympics hockey uh, i could go on i mean if you kind of you can't some of it's behind me but the whole the walls these are bookshelves and all it is 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 things that i've uh, things that i've bought online I, I put them up there until i can find a better place to put them so i'm I'm a, a pure collector. I collect. Right. I, I'm sitting there like the rest of you. I'm sitting there on eBay two or three nights a week uh, while a bad Hallmark Christmas movie is on in the background and my wife is on the couch asking me, are you paying attention? And I'm like, sure. You know, as I'm, as I'm looking at what CGC comics are up for auction that I might want to buy. It's yeah, I've got the bug. I've always had it and uh, I probably have it more now than, than ever. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. That's great. Uh, Mike at Eastridge wants to know the most important question. Has Adam been able to create a $100 plate of nachos yet? I'm guessing there's some uh, story behind this. I have no idea what Mike is talking about. No, I, at the keg <laughs> once in Toronto after a show, I, uh, I wanted uh, chicken nachos and the, the keg didn't have an option for putting chicken on nachos. And so when I asked if I get chicken on my nachos, the, 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 the waiter said no. I said, well, you have chicken. And uh, I said, in the menu, a chicken breast is like $14. If I pay $14, we cut it up and put it on the nachos. And uh, and, and so they did. But then it just became a, a game to see how expensive we could make these nachos. And we were adding crab meat and steak and triple mm -hmm. cheese. And and they ended up bringing out this mass. The manager himself walked these nachos out and, and then actually only charged us like $60, which kind of defeated the hundred dollar nachos joke but that was it was a much younger person i was probably you know young and stupid i was probably 40. so well yeah so thanks mike for bringing that up that was a fun that was kind yeah. of a fun night good memories eric advises that the calgary flames and the boston bruins are zero zero with ten and a half minutes left in the first thank you Eric, Tim Marin says, uh, Dave and Adams on Sheridan Drive was my LCS as a youth. Now, as an adult, I love checking out the mega store just around the block from my house. Proud of them. Great Western New York success story. Very nice, Tim. Alf, welcome to the show. Triple V, Tris Speaker, Boston, Jersey. Skeppy, welcome to the show. 
Colin Murray, same to you. Hobby Champ says, what are Dave and Adam's plan moving forward with Fanatics likely throwing a monkey wrench in the distribution? Is this your show, Hobby Champs, or my show? Obviously, that's going to be asked. We'll get, we'll come to that. We'll come back to that. I promise you, Hobby Champs. Joe says Plank and Lennon. There you go. Alf Godet took over a month to ship cards back from the States. And Dave and Adams, or Terry Fortune says, can Dave and Adams ship to Canada to Canadians from Canada? Can you? I can ship to Canadians from the U.S. Uh, hockey after it's been out for a year. Um. And then I don't think I have any rules on uh, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, but Upper Deck's rules are has to be a year. And um, I'd actually had a conversation with uh, with Angela Universal once uh, that if uh, you know if your e-commerce partners that you're growing in Canada ever let you down, how about how about if I open a place in uh, Fort Erie, and uh, we'll do a lot of business together? You can supply me, and I'll and I'll be the e-commerce guy for Canada. But uh, the Canadian dealers stepped up and, and really opened up some nice websites up there. So I'm told. And I actually mentioned it to him about a month ago. Uh, and he goes, nope, everything's going great. So so no no being in Canada. Otherwise, it's right over the border. I'd love to have an office in Canada. But that would violate my uh, my upper deck agreement. So that's there not going to happen anytime soon unless Angelo gives the thumbs up. So. <laughs> right on. And Robert, great to have you finally live. Awesome. Awesome. So I, I want to shout a couple of guys that work with you. First of all, Reed Casaoka was on the show here with me a couple months ago. We had, we had a great, a great episode. And also uh, the, the guy, a guy who came up to the, to the Toronto show several times, he collects Philadelphia flyers. Yeah. He's kind of my guy at, at Dave and Adams, Kevin Kramar is a, a great dude. I want to hear, you know, Obviously, I don't know everybody at Dave and Adams. You got 130 employees, but but I just say something nice if you can about Reed and Kevin. I'm just curious. Like these are guys I know from from Dave and Adams that sure. I really like. How 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 are these guys uh, doing at the at the shop? Okay, so Reed um, Reed came back to us. Uh, Reed was with us for several years, um, and then he um, he he went was working with Steve at Baseball Card Exchange for a number of years. He was kind of his head buyer. And then he uh, he married um, he married a, a woman from Buffalo, and uh, I I stopped at their house, um, you know, uh, they were having a party, and I stopped at their house to congratulate him. And uh, while I was there, he uh, he said, you know, hey, just let you know, I'm thinking about leaving baseball card exchange. Uh, it's been good, but um, you know, I'm looking to 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 make more money and and try some new things. I think within 24 hours, uh, we hired him to come to Dave and Adams, we didn't, we acted very, very quickly because there is no one, I shouldn't say no one, there's almost no one in the industry who has a wider breadth of knowledge than Reed Casaoka. He, he can look at vintage, he can look at some modern, he can look at unopened, he can look at autographs and he can, he's educated enough, he can, he can buy just about anything. And if you can team up with someone who can buy just about anything and is willing to spend you know, two thirds of the year on the road, and he is on the road two thirds out of the year. Uh, well, then you've got a great person. And and the way Reed and I do it, it's it's almost like a separate business. It's a partnership. Um, it's not like a salaried position. He's not making like eleven dollars an hour to, you know, he's he travels around, and and he and I have a, a profit sharing agreement. And uh, the more money he makes, the the more money I make. And I would he would tell you, I hope, over the past couple years since he's been back he's been very pleased with how how things have gone i would hope i hope he would say that 
And then if you want to talk about Kevin, so Kevin is a, is one of our top salespeople. And Kevin's been with us a number of years. But uh, what stands out about Kevin is he's not just a salesperson. He just has a genuine love of this hobby. And it comes through in how he interacts with his customers. Because when, you know, when they share a card with them that they got out of a case or they got from one of our breaks, I mean, he's genuinely excited for them. And then he'll share back a card that, that he's bought. And like you said, he's a Philadelphia Flyers fan, so no one's perfect. I you know, maybe was dropped on his head as a child in Buffalo somewhere to end up being a Flyers fan. But um, but he's just like this. We always bring him to the national because his personality is what's the word? He's just effervescent. Nice. There nice. you go. No one else will say that on your show ever. Just me. Never. That's no, perfect. he's he just well, here my dog. Probably being robbed. But uh He's uh, he's just a great guy, and his personality is fantastic, and it comes through when whenever he interacts with people. So we love we love Kevin. He sits right across from me, you know, a couple rows over. So I hear him on the I hear him talking on the phone. He's terrific. Yeah, good. And and the last person uh, let's talk about for a moment is um, a good friend of yours, a good friend of mine, Brad Hartland, who is Brad. sort of taking over the PSA uh, the PSA oh. Canada submission service here. Yeah. Um, what do you think? What do you think? Is, is he is he really a good guy or <laughs> what's the he's deal faking it. He's faking it. There, uh, he's faking it, right? He, it, it's uh, I, like you asked me, how did you meet Brad? And I said, I don't know. He's some guy set up in Toronto and I'd see him at these shows and I'd buy some stuff off him. And he'd always bring on open boxes and he'd price them too low. And I would just grab them as fast as I could. <laughs> and then uh, I said to him one day, what do you do? And he said, I own like eight bars and restaurants in Halifax. And I said, well, we're best friends now. And we have, we've become, we've become very close friends, but he's this incredibly successful businessman who, who now as many very successful business people are entering the hobby, but he's very successful and entered in the hobby years ago and just fell in love with it, with the business and kind of does it on the side. Although maybe more now, I mean, he is, he's done some terrific deals and he's really a, a player in this industry. And now he is overseeing PSA Canada, which is a huge I mean, a huge accomplishment, but he's been very successful for a long time. And if there is a nicer person on this planet, I don't, he is, he is 10 times a better person than I am. And I'm not so bad, but he's, he's a great, he's a great guy. I hope he's, I hope he's watching this. Now he owes me a, a beer and a sandwich for pretty late pretty late where he is. is. Oh yeah. Pretty That's late. Right. He's an hour program. from me. So yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And you, we talked about, you know, you have 130 people that work at Dave and Adams right now, but you mentioned to me that you have a couple of statisticians on staff. Can you explain how that, how they fit into the, to the company? Yeah. So several years ago, there, there are people in this business who I, I respect an awful lot for what they've accomplished. And, and one of them is, uh, he's like the largest baseball car dealer in the world, but nobody knows who he is. And his name is Matt Bayer. And he supplies the Walmart. His company is MJ Holding. They're out of Chicago. And one thing he he impressed a few things on me, and and one of those is is that you, your technology and your reporting can never be too good. And so we run our company based upon reporting algorithms and math. Now, look, we all can say I saw a comment come across the bottom, you know, about buying up Zion, right? So whenever you do what we do for a living, that's a very good question. Should people be buying Zion right now? 
So from my perspective, it's should I be what should I be doing with 2019-20 basketball? I have quite a bit of it. Should I be holding it? Should I be selling it? You know, it was a time for it to go. It could be mad money. Sell it or buy it. But um, but we have a couple stats, guys. Our main one is named Corey. And Corey just, just constantly pumping out reports and say, this is what's happening. This is how your product is turning. This is what's doing well. This isn't what's doing well. And then cross-references eBay, DealerNet, uh, competing websites. And just get to, we're able to get a really good look, a really good snapshot every day of what's happening in the world. And allows us to make decisions that I don't think really anyone else in our industry is really doing that. And uh, it's it allows us to act very, very quickly as the market is changing because let's face it, we're commodities brokers. You know, you know, Zion's hurt, Moran is hurt. What do you expect 1920 basketball to do? Well, you expect it to go down. And some of it is, but not all of it is. And it's important to have reports that can kick out that say, hey, you should maybe be selling this, but you might want to be buying this. It's taken years and years to get there, but it's something that we're very proud of. And uh, it's something that when I talk to some of the friends in this business about, I just get blank stares, kind of like yours, kind of getting a blank stare. No, you know what I mean? So it's 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 not fun. It's not sexy. Um, but it has enabled us to to run our business maybe differently than than other people. So so it's a it's an edge. You need an edge in business. And yeah. uh it's a nice one. Good for you. I, I respect it. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I want to say hello to Rage. Glad you're here. Thanks for the salute. Skeppy says, obviously, you can't keep all the coolest stuff, Adam. How do you condition yourself to let go of items that you would like to keep if you could? And I think that, that's a great question. How, Here's how the thing. You... Uh, I can't. Um, so since the business has been good, if my guys bring anything into that building, my guys who work off commission, I pay them their commission and I take it home. Um, but I mentioned that what I collect, most of what I collect are not pretty rare and I have to get those things out of heritage and Leland's and Robert Edwards. Those aren't things that come across the counter that our guys pick up that often. So it's few and far between, but, oh yeah. I mean, if a, you know, if Reed finds a Honus Wagner somewhere, well, I'm taking it, you know, he and I will have to, we'll figure out how much money he gets, but that card will never see the website. It'll never see the light of day. It'll come right to my house. So, um, so I, I'm, I am not conditioned to let that stuff go by. I, uh, I, I like it too much, but you'll just buy it from the business. I buy it from the business. Yeah. yeah Take it great. as a draw. It's like a paycheck. If, 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 so if Honus Wagner came in, well, that's a bunch of paychecks. I have to, you know, you still have to declare that you made that money, but I would, I, I'd take that home. So. You know, I'm just thinking to myself how I think it's really cool that, you know, you're you're an industry insider. You've got a ton of experience. You've got one of the best LCS businesses in the world. Um, you know, you're a collector. You said you're a true collector in your just your estimation, your gut feel. What percent of the LCS owners that you know and that you've met recently uh, are collectors turned turned store owners versus are, are any people open? Is anyone opening a store that that is not or was not a collector? It's a lot of stores opening right now. Um, that's a great question. I think a lot of people opening with stores now are certainly some are collectors, but it's a lot of breakers who have found some success, um, who want direct accounts with the manufacturers uh, and having a store is a requirement in some cases. I think that uh, when you take like Ryan at Card Collector 2, you open up a store as an extension of his 
of his very successful um, YouTube channel and, and uh, social media following. Uh, he may tell me that I'm wrong about that, but I, I think that's probably about right. So I think that if you if you I think if you look at a number of the stores that are opening, it is driven by this new modern singles economy and breaking. I think all of them have, have significant breaking operations. I really don't know how many of them are collectors. I know that Fish at Blowout is a massive comic and comic art collector. Um, I know that uh, Sean at Steel City told me he was underbidder on a Wagner that I decided not to bid on. And now I look back, I wish I had bought it. Um, so I, th I think that there's, uh, I know that Lloyd who owns GTS distribution is like one of the biggest Volkswagen collectors. Now that's different, but in the world he's in the Volkswagen. So I think that most of the guys I know uh, in this hobby who are successful are, are collectors, Matt bear, a big collector. So um, I think most, I think most of them are, but however, what percentage of them are opening up stores or the stores are being opened by collectors. I'm not sure. I tend to think most of the new stores being opened are being opened by breakers right now. All right. Well, good to, good to know. Good to get your view on that. I, I kind of, the, the real underlying question to, for me is do collectors make better business people in the hobby, whether it's as an LCS owner or anywhere, any sort of, well, Oh, do collectors make better business people? I think it's great to have knowledge and passion. I think collectors as business people can go wrong. Just like I have a friend who's a Bills fan who in his fantasy draft thinks it's a good idea to get all the Bills and wonders why he's never won the league. So sometimes you do have to step. I mean, I was just making a joke, you know, that if something comes in that you really, really want, you take it. You know, I can take it. I have the ability to do that. But if, if Prism Basketball comes out, we don't sit there and open up 10 cases of it. We sell every box online. You know, so I found that some collectors have a stores, they're just opening up all their unopened and putting the singles out. And sometimes that's not necessarily the best strategy for turning your inventory. So, so I think that I think that collectors have the knowledge and the passion. But um, some of the ones I've known who've gone into this business have made some decisions that maybe weren't solid business decisions. You've been in the business world for a long time, Jeremy. You must kind of know what I'm what I'm talking about a little bit. So, uh, but I know a lot of collectors who are very successful. Now, obviously, I was a collector before I opened a store. I've done okay. But I think, yeah, I think it's mostly breakers right now who are driving the new store opening. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, like you said, they wanted those direct accounts. So, that's the way to get it. Uh, Rage asks everyone to hit the like button. I appreciate that, Rage. And yes, please, guys, hit the like button. And if you're not yet subscribed to Sports Cards Live, subscribe. We bring you guests like like Adam Martin every Saturday night. Adam, you're now on with me every Saturday. Thank you very much. Daniel A says, hi, everyone. Nice to see Adam on the show. Met him years ago. Class act. Alf says that PSA needs a Canadian office for card submissions. I think we can all agree with that comment. Tom Bullard says, local... West New York in Lockport. So David Adams, it is here. Is it here? Awesome company. Great. Okay. Sorry. I'm having trouble reading the message, Tom. Uh, Sanderson to or one nothing Bruins. Darn it. And Daniel says, historically, I found it very difficult to negotiate with a deal with a dealer who was also a collector. That would, that would explain me a lot of the times as a, as a collector for sure. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's let's switch topics here a little bit, Adam. I want to talk about sort of future plans for Dave and Adams. Obviously, we are there is a period of uncertainty on the horizon here. 
Um, but outside of, because oh, we'll come to that, we'll come to the whole Fanatics licensing issue and, and change that is upon us. But thinking outside of the Fanatics um, effect and impact, what's any future plans for, are you guys planning to open up additional stores? Are you scaling any further? Where are you at in your career? What are the long-term plans for uh, David Adams at this point? So this sounds like a, a canned answer that there's a lot of things that we're working on, um, many of which I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to tip my hand. But some of the ones that uh, that I can talk about that we're proud of is um, this spring we're opening a store in Cooperstown, New York, uh, just steps from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, we have a, we did a deal with the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we're also opening a store in conjunction with Tops. In fact, it'd be something branded like Tops, brought to you by Dave and Adams. And so despite Topps is, you know, this fanatics thing, you know, you referenced that obviously it's not a, a necessarily a great time at Topps to trying to find their way in some ways, but to their, uh, you know, just to give them a shout out, they, they, they promise us they do this with us and they've kept their word. And so the, we'll be opening a store in conjunction with Topps in Cooperstown in the spring. It's a seasonal store. It'll be open during, during baseball season. I mean, if you've been to Cooperstown in January, you probably don't want to have a card store there in January. There's really no, not too many people there. Um, but 10,000, 20,000 something families go through there every summer. And so if you wanted to open up a store to hit families and young sports fans and hopefully turn them into card collectors, it's one of the best places you can open. And our, our plan is to uh, no one comes into that store, doesn't walk out with free packs of cards and, and hopefully uh, a love of collecting. Plus we'll probably have a lot of, sell a lot of Pokemon. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've got a couple of people um, uh, from our company here who are going to be uh, staying there uh, half the year and running it. Plus, we'll find some uh, some people who uh, young people who who live in Cooperstown to help us out. But we're excited about that. It's a big thousand square foot store. It's a step down quite a bit from the store we have here, but it's going to be very top centric. It's going to be a nice store. And so, if anybody's going to Cooperstown uh next year they should they should check it out i think we'll be pretty proud of it so that's neat when you open it what's that when is it going to open uh i think april so i don't know an exact day but uh the hardest thing in, this, in, in today's day and age uh with anything in our industry or any industry is is being able to give an exact date but it's, it's the fixture should be there in january and if the fixtures are there then we'll be good to go good. and so we're working on that um another thing that we're working on doing um, is growing our content and our place in, in this new world of where it's really about content generation. And we've hired a whole team who will be doing a morning show and a number of different things. I'm sure we'll chat again about it in the future. But one part of that that I'm proud of is we're going to begin um, a program where we're going to give back to the industry. I mean, all of us if, with what I do have, have made more money in the past couple of years than ever, anybody ever thought that they would. Many of the guys I see Ken from pastime going by, I'm sure he falls in that category also. Very, very successful out, out, out in Vancouver. And so we've decided, well, let's let's give back a little bit. So we've committed a million dollars to give away next year entirely to card-related causes. So that could be a, a card store owner who had a theft or a fire or maybe there's a collector in Ohio or in Manitoba who has cancer and can't pay his bills, medical bills. So starting in the new year, we'll be out there looking for people who are part of this industry who 
for lack of a better word, just need some help. And and our plan is to is just we I think we give back quite a bit regionally. Um, there's a number of charities we support in Western New York, but we're going to take it a step further and and take some of this money we've made, uh, quite frankly, and and see if we can do some good with it within our industry next year. Awesome. That's yeah. a great initiative, man. We, uh, kudos to you and the team for uh, for doing that. Anything else about kind of plans, upcoming plans for the company, for yourself that you want to discuss before we move on? Boy, I don't think so. Those are the two that come to mind. Was the one I talked to you about yesterday that I forgot? No. <laughs> well, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Fanatics. Do you want to segue into Fanatics now? Let's segue into fanatics in a couple minutes. Okay. We will and give me a couple minutes. One thing, because I want, I want to, uh, I want to go. I will, first of all, thank you, Benny Cromwell. Welcome to the show. I like Ken's comment here. It says I collect all the stuff I can't sell. Yep. Uh, Lo- this is a comment. Logan says, "Does David Adams buy boxes cases that are not on the buy list?" And <laughs> I, I'm bringing up this one because uh, I want to segue into some unopened wax discussion. But I'll let you answer the question. Yeah, you know that buy list. If you'd ask me. Um a year or two ago, you know, what are you working on? And that, that buy list um, took about a year to develop because that is, uh, that is driven by uh, statistics, you know, by math. We're looking at what do we need? What's this box going for in the world? And so the number that we buy and what we pay for them is, uh, is almost fully automated. So, I would say that, yes, there. I'm sure we buy things that aren't on the buy list, but you can imagine that if I have 100 cases of something and it just came out and it's not selling great out of the gate, there's no buy price going to be run for that. So, But there are things that sometimes we aren't even aware of that exist in the world, maybe a Topps regional release or a, a penny store-only release, like Illusions Basketball came out was only solicited to stores, to brick and mortar stores. And so somebody called him and said, Hey, are you, are you buying this? And we didn't even know it was out. So, so yes, in, in some instances we are, but um, for the most part, that list is pretty all encompassing at least for 2017 to the present. And we're diligently working to automate pre 2017. Now, and all that really means is if, if a box sells on eBay with 28 bids at a thousand dollars, you know, we're probably going to have a buy pop in there at 900, you know, or something like that. So, um, so they're still working on, on the vintage aspect of it, but otherwise, um, I think it's pretty accurate, but I always encourage people to email to say, Hey, I have this, are you buying this? But okay. the, the rule is if it's, if it's relatively new and it's likely that I got a big allocation of it, you won't see a buy up there right away. So speaking of big allocations and and just investing in wax, this is what I wanted to get to is what is your position like in terms of, you know, so much talk about investing in the hobby over the past couple of years now. And there's a lot of uh, there's a narrative out there, you know, that, oh, the best way to invest is to buy the unopened product. You're basically buying the the index of the rookies from the year. Uh, and then there's the other side of it that says, well, people, too many people are hoarding the product. There's not enough out there. Well, you know, the kids can't get it. All of those different uh, competing sort of positions. And I'm sure you're aware of all of them. With all that said, you know, what's your thoughts on the investability in unopened product? Um, do you do you sit on a lot of it? What's the plan? What is the plan for people? If you are one of those people, what's the plan 
uh, in terms of ultimate disposal of these things? How long do you sit on this stuff for? Yeah, there's a new term that's kind of coming to the hobby in the last year or two, and that's legacy inventory. And that just means all the stuff that you put away to sell in the future. I think all of us knew years and years ago that if you put a bunch of Magic the Gathering booster boxes away and held on for five years, you'd probably make a really nice return on your investment. And so a lot of people started doing that. And then Pokemon and then hockey and football, basketball, baseball. And some people have made life-changing money by doing that. Um, And we do it aggressively. Um, Every day we're discussing what we're putting away for the future and what we're deciding to either not put away for the future or what we've put away that now we choose to bring all or some of out of storage, out of the vault, so to speak, and make it available on the website. And um, those decisions sometimes are kind of hard to explain um, why we do it and why we don't do it. We, we did decide to free up a lot of our uh, 1920 basketball, some of our national treasures and immaculate and flawless and some of these titles that we had put away. Uh, we have a sale coming up next week and and we'll launch all those products in there at what we feel are very competitive prices because we're just not sure what the future is for zion and that class that was seemed so strong last year and and maybe we'll regret it because some people may say well now is the perfect time to buy it right so if you'd asked me a year ago is unopened a great investment um i would have said absolutely but I think that in a world where you can't get a card graded uh, at a reasonable price, um, there's nothing that is impacting my business um, or my contemporaries' businesses more than the fact that you can open up a, a, a Prism Basketball Blaster for 70 bucks and get a pretty decent card. But if that card's not graded, it's very difficult to sell. And to realize a profit off that $70 purchase. You know, a couple of years ago, you could get cards graded at PSA if you were one of their better guys for $6. And if you were just somebody off the street, you know, a cheaper card, maybe it was 10 or 12. And maybe you'd have to pay 50. But if you paid 50, you got it back right away. And so now it's $100 plus to, to get that card graded that you got out of that $70 box. And while that still exists, Investing in an open is a little bit risky because it's fine the treasures and the flawless. Because if you get a big card out of there, you don't care about paying 100 to 200, 300 to grade the card. But Prism, Prism football, Prism basketball have seen some real downturns in the past six, eight months because, you know, at the time you could open a box of Prism football not too long ago. And you could grade 50 cards. You could get a, a Tom Brady base card. If you got a 10, you might be able to get $300 for it. But no one's grading that card for $100 now. Because if you get a nine, you, you lost your money. Yeah. So the days of being able to open up Prism and grade a bunch of cards and, and see a profit is gone. So that is really kind of stifling, in my opinion, the investor market in modern unopened, except for the, the highest best of the best and that's your one-on-one basketball up to your eminence basketball you know your your national treasures football really needs to be if you're going to invest in an open right now the way it's working for beckett and for and for psa right now those price points 
you really have to be just putting away the, the cream of the crop and hoping that the rookies in there continue to pop. And then occasionally you have a situation like 2020 Treasures Football, which should be a terrific investment because of Herbert and Burrow, but Burrow is redemption in there. And so you have a limited amount of time that you could hold that product before you can sell it. Yeah. On top of that, I'll add that we have found that generally speaking, even though it looks great on the website, after a product's been out for two or three years, it becomes very difficult to sell. Even if you make a good decision to put it away, it's very expensive. And most people covet what's new. They're not, they don't want to buy a, a six thousand dollar box of 1819 prison basketball. They want to buy the new 2122 prism when it comes out in a couple months. And so that's so that older inventory looks terrific, shiny and it's flashy, doesn't sell that quickly. So I think that I don't recommend a lot of investing in anything lower end until we see PSA open up a few more locations and and people be able to get cards graded at more reasonable levels. But don't you think that PSA will open up some additional locations and will scale their operations? So isn't it sort of like you said, let's wait until that happens, but by then you might be too late. So if we assume that they are going to scale, which they've been doing all year, uh, and, and you know the message that they're putting out there is that they will continue to scale, does that have an impact on it? The fact that, well, it's going to be eventual, or do you, we need to see what it's going to cost on a bulk submission first? I, I think that's what it is. I think that I think that I would like to understand better what the bottom price point is going to yeah, be. That makes sense. And not for the big submitters, not not for you know, not for the big guys, but the, the regular collector who sends them in themselves. You know, even if it gets down to thirty or forty dollars, you know, if that's their floor for a hundred ninety nine dollar card, you know, it still yeah. makes Prism the, the ability to open up Prism and make money gets it's it's gone. It's very challenging at that point. So. I want to bring up this comment. Cardboy says he uh, just noticed that Dave and Adam's buy list was dramatically cut. He asks why, and then assumes it's the result of a market decline. Dramatically cut. It shouldn't be cut from the number of different things that we are buying. That's still thousands and thousands of boxes and cases, uh, mostly boxes that we're buying on there. But absolutely, some price points have come down. And that does go hand in hand with uh, the market conditions that are being created by the inability to grade some cards, as well as some other factors. I mean, you've got you know some baseball, a lot of baseball coming out at the end of the year. And uh, off-season baseball is always pretty rough. People just don't buy baseball in December. Um, so I would say that it's a num- there are a number of factors that I'm not very bullish on many products right now. Um, I really like 2021 basketball. I didn't like it at the beginning of the season. I like it now. Um, so I suppose it just depends on on the product. But we're being very careful about what we're buying right now. I, I think most of my contemporaries are as well. Um, and then there are things that we're really buying heavily. Uh, we still like certain soccer releases. Like I said, we still like some 2021 basketball releases. We love 2021 absolute football. I think that if you're lucky enough to be in a, a Walmart or target.com, if there's a 2021 absolute football mega box sitting there, you just got to grab it. So we really like 2021 absolute football. We've been buying a lot of that. 
So it just depends on the product. Um, like I sit there and say, I don't like 1920 basketball right now. I like 2021 football, but it's not like the course, the quarterbacks are doing okay, but they're not putting up pro bowl type numbers, but you have to believe that a couple of those guys are just going to be, are going to be terrific in the future. So I'm putting away a decent amount of 2021 football. And in that case, I am holding it until PSA is grading at a lower price point because otherwise it's a bad decision. So, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, there's gotta be just the seasonality of, of the, of the hobby, you know, like you said, it's off season for, for baseball, you know, anything with Zion might not be something that, you know, you want us, you want to take a risk on right now as much as you would have a year ago or, or, you know, even six months ago. So there's, there's many more factors, uh, you know, than, than, than just a blanket statement that the, that the market's declining. I don't see the market declining. Um, some cards, sure, but uh, I see records every day being set. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. I, I want, what happened to, to Dave? This, the business is called Dave and Adams. Where's Dave? Uh, I invented him. He said, no, uh, no, Dave, at the end of, uh, what is it now? End of 2018. Um, he was, uh, met someone who's going to get married. He's going to move to Charleston and, um, South Carolina. And he, he, uh, he just asked me, he goes, Hey, are you just interested in, in buying me out? My heart's not in it anymore. And, uh, I put away a lot of money and I'm going to get married again and move out of the area. And, uh, and I said, sure. And you know, we've been friends forever. So I think the negotiation took a uh, 10 minutes. And uh, it was uh, maybe the easiest business transaction in the, in the history of partnerships uh, ending. But uh, I still love him. I was going to go on vacation with him uh, about a month ago until COVID reared again and uh, some borders got shut down. So, yeah. But I uh, hope that I get to spend some time with him in the near future because um, I mean, we'll be friends for our whole lives. But okay. he's not in cards anymore. He's just golfing and living on a beach half the year so his uh, don't feel too bad for dave he's doing just fine <laughs> just just curious more than anything i mean yeah. you know his name is is somewhat synonymous with the hobby now at least his sure. first name but i got a good chuckle out of bobby burrell's comment dave's not here man i know that's yeah. Yeah. that's a reference to a movie i just can't think of which one right now but um thanks, for that. Gee, thanks for that post yeah. uh bobby okay <laughs> let's let's get into uh what I think a lot of people want to hear about, which is sort of the, the current, your, your views on the current state of the hobby and the future of the hobby. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the current state of the hobby in terms of the past two years. They've been, things have gone totally bonkers. You've addressed how you're responding to them from a business perspective in terms of your, your wax and opening up a store in Cooperstown with tops, that sort of thing. But, you know, Talk about the last couple of years, uh, your your views, your perspectives on it. Obviously, you said earlier you were not expecting this to happen. You know, you would have said I lost my mind if I said to you three years ago that this was going to happen. But now that it has happened, what are your thoughts, just generally? And then we'll get into the whole uh, fanatics thing. Well, they, they're kind of tied together because, uh, as I, I, I recall, um, in March of 2020. And we're all working from home. And I, I can almost recall the moment that our Tuesday sales numbers came through. And it didn't it didn't make a lot of sense. I thought there was an error. And no, it was just a, a big influx of different people. You know, 30% of them had never ordered from us before. It was really 
strange. The first thing that kicks in my head is fraud. Maybe some kind of mass credit card fraud because these things are happening. That wasn't fraud. And then Wednesday, we saw the same trend. And Thursday, we saw the same trend. And then you began to see the, the buy-sell spreads on product. Almost everything that existed began to creep like this because this crazy demand started to occur for everything. Right. And maybe it was because of guys like me sitting in their their offices looking to looking to spend money, I guess, uh, who didn't weren't taking trips, who didn't have to buy suits anymore. And they were just going to go buy boxes of cards. And, you know, at the time with COVID hit, we all thought we might go bankrupt. And the exact opposite happened. Everything just went crazy. And the term alternate investment vehicle became something that every card store owner suddenly could say to people because suddenly Michael Jordan tens, you know, went up 30 times in value. You know, these crazy things just started happening. And we all, all of us old timers just sat back and said, what is going on? And so while that's happening, I, I there's two workstations here in my office over my, over my left shoulder here. And uh, I would have a couple guys working with me who manage product with me. They'd be here every day. And you'd just be raising prices every single day because the price to reacquire things was going up every single day. And I'd never seen anything like it. And it went for months and months and months. And all of us firmly believe that it, it you know, that we're somewhere depending on who you speak to, Jeremy, either we're in the top of the ninth inning and boy, we had a great run, right? Or we're still in the very edge of what this hobby can be. Now I tend to be a moderate. I tend to put myself somewhere in the middle. Um, but I, I think that one thing that I said to all my contemporaries is, you know, be, be careful what you wish for, because suddenly all this money was coming and Wall Street was taking notice and it opened up the door for a deal like Fanatics did, where all of us, whether we're store owners or breakers or, or Internet guys, suddenly we're facing down the road here in a few years, a great degree of uncertainty. So I'm kind of segueing into your next what we were going to talk about, what next everybody talks to me about. I couldn't walk around the Toronto show. People would stop me. I don't know who they are and start asking me about fanatics. And and I will tell you that personally, I've had to walk, walk this interesting tightrope where I have terrific relationships with Tops and Panini, but I've also gotten to know some of the team behind. I've known Josh Luber a little bit for a while, and I've, he's, I've met some of his team. These are very smart motivated people who look at our industry differently. Um, I don't necessarily agree with with all other ideas, but they look at our industry very differently. And I certainly would like to, for the sake of my employees and, and my company, I would like to coexist with them in five years. I'm not sure what that role will be. Um, but, you know, it has created this, this, this cloud of uncertainty that hangs over us where and, and everyone else where we're just not 100% sure what's going to happen. And it's still very, very early. Uh, Fanatics is, is obviously hiring. They are um, doing a lot of very high level thinking. And a couple of things have been shared with me that I just think are absolutely ingenious.
And so I, I, I would like to think that, um, like I said, that, that all of us who, who do this for a living um, have a place in, in, in this new world, but none of us really know what, what's going to happen. And so as a company, what we can do to control our future is, well, we feel that upper deck now with the agreement they've made with the NHL and the NHL Players Association will be around for many, many years. Um, that deal is 20 years, maybe. I don't know exactly. I'm speculating. Um, but that means, well, one thing that seems fairly certain is that we have a place in hockey collecting in five years. So we're going to spend some energy growing our our growing our hockey customer base and our Marvel customer base and our gaming customer base, because that seems pretty stable at the moment. And we're going to grow our hit parade brand and we're going to grow what we buy from the public, those sell lists. You know, I hope that we expand them even more and that we don't get any more comments that say it seems like it's contracting because we want to grow what we spend with the public because we can control those things. We can't control what Fanatics is going to do with baseball, football and basketball. So, uh, I again, I, I think I have a good position in this business. I think that I know everybody pretty well. I think they respect what I do and, and my opinions and what I have to say. But there's still a lot of uncertainty for all of us. Nobody has a crystal ball. It can look five years or seven years down the line and, you know, and, and know what kind of role we're going to have in baseball, football, and basketball. You, you hinted to it a little bit there in terms of, like, what are you going to do to sort of uh, just find your way through the uncertainty. You mentioned hockey, Marvel, gaming, uh, I, I guess properties that are sort of not covered by fanatics at this point in time. Um, is it, what else What else would you, like if, if you were approached by other LCS owners, and I'm sure you guys are talking in your, in your private Facebook group and, and elsewhere, just on, on, on phones and all that. Um, what are, what is, I have so many questions. I'm like, which one to ask first, but how, like, are the, are all the LCSs are, I know the answer is no, but are, are many of them, what, what percent of LCSs do you think are going to be able to, to pivot and adapt to the new environment that will come again, the uncertain environment, because we don't know what it will be yet, but mm -hmm. assuming that it's going to be drastically different than it is today. Are you confident in the current cross section of LCSs across the country right now, U S and Canada, that, they're going to survive. How many are like, what percent survives? What percent doesn't? Um, and what can they do aside from, aside from, you know, going, going strong into hockey and gaming and marble, what can they do to uh, ensure they do survive? How, how do you, how do you pivot and adapt in this? Well, I, in this you know, I, I don't, I don't want to create like a panic or anything out there. I just, you know, we don't run our business as if it's the bottom of the first, we have to run our business as if there's, a possibility that this unbelievable market won't continue. You know, that's how I look at things. Uh, maybe that makes me DJ always called me, a, you know, a glass half empty guy. Uh, maybe, maybe I am. I think the, the fanatics guys have come out and said that there's a place for stores and a place for distributors and a place for breakers in, in the future. And so I don't think anybody should, should panic, but if you're me, and your primary business is unopened boxes via e-commerce and fanatics is an e-commerce monster. Well, I think I have, I'm a lot more at risk than a store owner or a breaker. Right. And so that's why I'm kind of pivoting and focusing on some other things 
Not that I think I won't be necessarily part of the future. I just recognize that I have an e-commerce platform. Fanatics has an e-commerce platform. How do I exist, right, in that world? Uh, whereas if I'm a store, I think it's very important for Fanatics to maintain brick-and-mortar stores to be able to interact with consumers on a, on a regional level. I think it's important for Fanatics to continue to support and nurture the breaker environment because it creates this social atmosphere that was missing. Uh, you know, you, you know if, if the stamp collecting world has gone away, the number of stamp collectors is so small, you can't do stamp breaking. If you do stamp breaking, there probably be people collecting stamps again because there's just there's just a bunch of you know old people sitting in a room with tweezers. So I don't think Fanatics is going to to get rid of brick and mortar stores. They're not going to get away get get rid of breaking. Uh, but I'm an e-commerce company, and they're an e-commerce company, and so naturally, I have some fear there of of how do I exist in in that space. Yeah. So, um, but but again, I, I think that I think that fanatics. We do a lot of business with fanatics's regular division, uh, memorabilia and such. So I, I you know, we have good relationships there. We hope it's gonna hope it's going to go okay. And I think that all of us in this business, no matter what we do, if we're successful and we bring something to it, I think the guys running Fanatics cards are going to cards are going to keep those people around. It's that simple. If you have a really good store or you have a really good breaking operation and you're a professional and you bring something to this industry and you can help this industry grow four or 500% like they want to, then I think you're going to have a place in the future, you know, and maybe if you're, subpar and how you do things and your professionalism maybe you don't yeah fair fair okay we'll go to a couple comments and i have another big question for you here so uh first of all skeppy here says one of the ideas of the future is to refine the concept of repacking and recycling product of the past for resale your thoughts on that i mean you're doing it i do it i do it i have uh it's 30 something people part of that 130 that that's what they do and it it's it's true and i think that um i think that the manuf existing manufacturers embrace it because it's you know it's a cycle where if people are getting these good cards out of boxes and whether they can grade them or not if they get put up on ebay we're up there buying them you know so it creates a cycle of support for the unopened box manufacturers that we're then buying the singles and of course, we're buying autographs and we're keeping, you know, the member. I think I think we might be the largest buyers of autographs in the world. I, I, I'm pretty sure we're at least top three. We buy a lot of autographs. So we are supporting other ends of the business through repacking. And I do believe that it has a place in the future. And of course, if, if my future goes downhill, if things don't work out for me, well, that's a nice that's nice to fall back on because you can really channel. I can just double you know, double my efforts in that, in that, you know, in that, in that business model and take that even further for us. Certainly gives me some hope for the future um, that we have a nice repacking business. All right. Good. Thank you for, for those thoughts. Troy says fanatics has already disclosed. They want their trading cards everywhere. Grocery stores, gas stations, drug stores. Sounds like heavy over printing to me. I've heard the same hmm. comment from, I think Josh hmm. Luber mentioned that the other night on the uh, Sports Card Investor Virtual Holiday uh, event. Can you, yeah, so what do you think of, how do you interpret a comment like this, Adam? 
Well, if you want to grow the bit, you know, you've, you've made some commitments to baseball, football, and basketball. They made some uh, Michael Rubin and, and Fanatics made some very significant commitments to the players associations and the, and the, um, and the owners group that require them to sell a lot of product. Now, I would believe that they think that they can make collectible collectibles fun uh, cards fun and available to a new generation of collectors and to their parents. And that does require having them be on the shelves more than three minutes. Because as we all know, the first one of us who sees those 12 prison blasters on the Walmart shelf, we're not buying one, we're buying 12. And that's a problem that has to be solved. And so I think they're going to look for the, the line at which something is collectible and fun with a little bit of a gambling element to it, but is not so unbelievably desirable on the secondary market that it never lasts on the shelves. So it is a great idea. And I think uh, it'll be difficult to implement initially, but I think that they have a good team who can probably make that work. And if you just think about how Fanatics does business, you know, when a they're unbelievable when a when a World Series, you know, the day after the World Series, you know, there's just hundreds of products that they're producing for that winner. You know, Cubs win the World Series, they're doing, you know, they're doing etched baseball cubes and t-shirts and every number of things and putting them out there. And they are collectible, but we're not buying them all up. Yeah. But they have value to the people who are buying them. And I think they're going to try to bring that, maybe bring that 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 type of of collector passion to cards. At least I think that's probably a a good plan. It does it does require printing a lot. So But if you can grow the demand, then you can grow the supply. That's like, what do you what do you so here, here's here's my my big question that I have for you, really is and I'm gonna I'm just gonna add a bit to it but um put on your fanatics hat you are running you are josh luber or michael rubin or whomever is going to be really calling the shots there so i guess luber at this point from my understanding anyway um if you are if you are managing fanatics put on put on the fanat your fanatics hat adam and and tell what would you i mean and i, I asked this because you've got so much experience in the industry more than most people that walk the the the, the planet actually, um, you know, from such such a and such a, a wide a broad range of experience in the hobby. Um, what do you do? What do you do if you're fanatics over the next uh, you know couple of years? And what are you what are you doing for the next couple of years? And what are your long range plans? How do you roll out this new business? What 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 changes do you make? Well, do you keep the same. What do you keep the same? What kind of changes do you make? Um, Good question. Now, again, this is f f more philosophical or, or uh, speculation than anything else. Um, but obviously, um, there's an awful lot to print. So like we talked about, so they're going to have to probably create their own printing company or acquire an existing one. And there may not be an existing one that can meet their printing needs. There are a couple very successful ones in, in this country and in Europe, but short of acquiring a printer, they're going to have to create their own printing facility. And so that's going to take some time to get off the ground. Um, obviously, they 
I think they're going to begin to get into AI quite a bit, artificial intelligence. And so um, they're going to need to hire a lot of really good tech people just to build the website and start to look at some of these very high level technologies because they're going to, they need to change this industry if they're going to grow it. And that's going to require technology and some very creative thinking, something that's beyond me uh, personally. But again, they're, they're putting this team together that thinks big. So they need to do that. That's big enough. Then they need to start acquiring people who have knowledge in this industry, who also have the ability to think beyond the past, who can come up with innovative ideas. Yeah. And they've started doing that, but that's still mm -hmm. in its infancy. Um, and then again, then again, of course, they have to make a decision. Are they going to uh, hire the best product developers and start their own Fanatics brands? Or, as everybody assumes, they're going to acquire Tops and or Panini. So I think everybody sits there and assumes that they're going to do that. Um, I think that Tops and Panini have the ability to make a lot of money in the next few years that may make it... Um, unlikely that they get bought in the short term but at the same time if i'm fanatics the one the one brand that i'm most concerned about is bowman because if you didn't buy tops and tops tops could still exist as a very powerful company just based upon bowman their bowman brand and doing football basketball baseball minor league deals and and um, nil deals because while most and I, well, I think most of us don't get too excited about any of these pre-rookie uh, kind of collegiate cards that have come along recently, if it's the if it's a Bowman Chrome pre-rookie football card of a you know if, if Trevor Lawrence had had an NIL deal in 2019 and he had a 2019 Bowman Chrome football autograph refractor out of ten, that card might be viewed differently than a lot of the NIL cards that are coming out now would be viewed. So. I think it's probably imperative for for fanatics to acquire tops at some point. That makes sense for uh, that makes sense. But Michael Eisner is a very shrewd businessman, and Michael Rubin is a very shrewd businessman. From what I understand, I've never never met either of them. Um, but I think at some point there that will happen. Um, and then on the Panini side, Panini has put together a string of, uh, you know, some, a couple unbelievable years and they have five years left at least in, in, in football and basketball, as I understand it, they can make a lot of money in the next five years. So it's not like they're, they would, it's not like the Salustro family would sell that company cheap. So um, I think it'll be maybe, maybe a couple years before you see an acquisition. And, and if there is one, I think if I have my fanatics hat on, that needs to be tops. And again, I'm I'm just speculating. I'm I don't work for tops or fanatics, um, but I if I'm them, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm also a big believer that I like hockey, football, and basketball rookies being in the year in one year when they are rookies. And I know everybody loves Bowman. Maybe I'll get some flack for this. I love Bowman too, but I look back to 2001. If you were doing this in 2001, and Ichiro and Pujols, they didn't have any Bowman cards in 1999. Their first cards were 2001. In 2001, baseball products, everybody wanted everything because they were the true rookies of Ichiro and Pujols. I would kind of like to get back to that.
Yeah. I would like Wander Franco's rookie to be in the current year's product and in every single one, just like we have in hockey and football and and uh, basketball. So, and uh, so I think Fanatics may go that route as well. But uh, you can't do that if Bowman is is still out there, right? No, that's a great call out. At least that's what I would. That's what I would do. Yeah. So. No, that's insight that you have that, uh, you know, a lot of people coming in might not have. So um, hopefully they're listening and watching and listening uh, and, and you know, can can get have some of this, uh, this, this, this great advice. And I, don't know about, I don't know if I want them watching and listening. <laughs> you never know. So I want to go to supply and demand for a second, because my understanding is that Fanatics wants to grow the hobby 10, 10 X in the next, you know, during, at, you know, in however long in order to do that, you need to, you, you need to increase the demand. We need more people buying cards in the hobby. And personally, I've always thought there's the potential is there, you know, anyone going to a sporting event who likes the sport, who's not just there to go and be seen, but actually like the sport, why aren't they collecting cards too, if, if they aren't yet? So the whole supply and demand, it's like the, the chicken and the egg thing. Do, what, what does a Fanatics do first? Do they pump a bunch of money into, into marketing and resources into marketing and growing the demand so that, so that they can achieve their goal? But at what point do they start printing? Do they start, grow, do they start building up the supply to meet that demand? So, or do they, grow the, do, they, do they print? Do they increase the supply at first? And then hope that their marketing efforts work, and they and the and the the uh, the supply can actually be consumed. How? Yeah. Go ahead. Like, yeah. I mean, the how do you how do you grow this hobby ten x in a few years? And how do you balance that growth so that you're like it's it's got to be it's going to be a very delicate balance as they grow. You know, supply demand, supply demand. Hopefully, always it's growing and the pie is getting bigger, but. How, how do you think they're going to manage that? And uh, what advice would you give them if you could? I, I, I made a joke to someone. Hey, we may only be a handful of years away from seeing a football card in the Super Bowl commercial. No one fanatics is behind it because this is a whole different level of a company. You know, I mean, tens of billions of dollars. I mean, it's they're an unbelievably large company taking over what for so many years was a very, very small industry. I shouldn't say taking over, taking a dominant position in what used to be a very, very small industry. So, again, I think it's get your infrastructure in place. Um, and then at some point, they're going to have to start signing players and doing marketing deals. So I think the marketing, part of the marketing comes along in the very initial stages to get your spokespeople in place. Then. Um, but it's it's hiring the right people and putting your getting your infrastructure together is what you have to do first. And then I would guess, um, I don't envision them making 100 products in baseball or 100 products in football, right? That works in our currently how we do things. That works pretty well, although there's just so many things coming out all the time, right? We don't really, there aren't really 100 baseball products, but if you count blasters and all the different forms, there certainly are. So I wouldn't expect them to make so many different baseball, so many different football. And to let their giant marketing machine go out and show people why this is fun. While at the same time, making some of these really high end products like your national treasures type products, right? Or your tops definitive, your diamond icons, 
type products to sell to the more advanced collectors. So there would be probably a variety of tiers of, of product guessing would be how I would do it. But um, you do have to be able to print it. You have to be able to make a lot of it. So you need to have this team in place. And so I guess maybe in the first year or two, they'll probably, they won't start out with the, the volumes that you might see a few years down the line. They have to get their feet wet, so to speak. Um, it took a long time for Panini to become what they are today. You know, initially when Panini came in here and the Donner's playoff brands were basically retired and everything was Panini on the shelves. And I think that the Excel Marketing MJ Holdings, who supply Walmart and Target, will tell you that that this Panini product, and Panini is a sandwich here. Panini wasn't initially well received as, as a brand. It took them a lot of time. And so it's going to take Fanatics time to and the right team to put together to be able to do this 10x, to be able to create that. And so I think it's put the team in place, get the infrastructure going, start off slowly, don't make a lot of dramatic changes to the industry as it is today, and then make decisions as you go along, the degree to which you want to support breakers, brick and mortar, guys like me, I think that will They'll find that that those the places for us or not for us as they move along, but I think initially it'll be status quo for a little while as they try to find their way. But there are some smart people, and it's a big company, so they're going to get it right eventually. Yeah. Uh, at least for the sake of our uh, of our hobby, I hope that what they're doing is going to be as positive as they as they think it can be yeah i mean i have i have you know i have faith i'm hopeful you know i have it's uncertain but you know you you put smart people in a room and uh and if they're if they you know josh luber is a collector so we already know that we've got a collector's mindset uh kind of you know at, at the executive level which which is important and um listening to other other collectors other in well not just collectors but industry experienced people and building out their team um i i have faith in that and uh they have a they have a lot to lose so hopefully they 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 do it uh they do it as they do it right hopefully they do it right i like adam holgate's comment here you alluded to this too says hoping fanatics has separate classes of cards like hobby and retail print all the retail they want and put the growth and put it in grocery gas sell hobby on online and in lcs's i think a lot of people are kind of hoping for that as well uh victor agrees with your rookie card theory adam he is known as the rookie card specialist victor check out his youtube channel logan wants to know how much you guys did on black friday <laughs> yeah black friday was up 34 percent over last year but our margins were down we definitely uh, down about eight points so a little math there so we definitely um, generated a lot of orders and a lot of dollars, but we sacrificed some margin. And I mentioned that, you know, that's something like 1920 basketball. We had quite a bit of legacy yeah. inventory. And we moved off a chunk of that through Black Friday. So hopefully Zion comes back and Morant comes back and everyone who bought it is super happy. And I look back on it and go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, you're right. So you're I, I think it, 
You said you're up 34% though in revenue. I mean, that's the number yeah. that interests me. Your margins are that, that impacts you, but that mm-hmm. top line tells me that people are still pumping money in and the, oh, yeah. the hobby's doing, the hobby's still quite strong if you're up 34% over last year, which was at this point last year, the hobby was still very mm-hmm. upswingish, right? I mean, basketball was very hot right now last year. So um, that's good to hear. Uh Show cards as Bronny James will send the hobby to the moon in 2023. I think uh, I think Joe Pro is is sort of uh, corroborating that, saying that's that's no joke. Yeah. What are you hearing about that? Do you have uh, is that is that going to be a big deal? I haven't heard. Uh, you know, I've certainly seen um, clips of him on ESPN and everything. I uh, would tell you that after Lonzo Ball and his father and all that, I. I didn't expect Lamella Ball to be the, to, the player that he is. So maybe I'm not the best best judge of young basketball talent. So um, I have no idea. The name is certainly pretty great. So yeah. uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what he turns into. But he's still a young man. So, <clears throat> hey, Jeremy, one thing I'd be remiss to mention, um, um, just revisiting the Fanatics uh, topic really quickly, is how I mentioned that they've, they've – got this smart team that they've put together but there's an equally smart motivated people at tops and panini who are going to do everything that they can to prove to their ownership that even if these licenses go away that they can be very very viable companies and so it's an interesting ballet kind of that's happening in this world where you know maybe panini becomes more focused on soccer and very focused on soccer in ufc and and top becomes very focused on Star Wars and and um, Formula One and and their soccer licenses because those are still as right now you know existing uh, potentials for their future. Just like I said, maybe hockey is the best bet for mine. I don't I don't know, um, but I don't want to make it seem like that that those guys weren't working very hard to counterpunch right what they see is happening to them on the from 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 the fanatics uh, deals so it's very it's very interesting the dynamic that exists right now in the industry and i i, I started to kind of tell the story that i you know, was speaking to one of my friends who's a, a pretty big distributor and i and he goes isn't this great and i said yeah but it's too good you know be careful what you wish for and then sure enough the fanatics deal came along for all of us in jeopardy because when your business grows 400 percent uh and wall street's looking at you suddenly there's more there's money looking at you and then that can upset the apple cart and that's you know to some extent that's kind of what that that's what happens yeah no you're 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 glass half empty approach glass Uh, half empty guy you are yeah if i wasn't i would have bought up all the 91 pacific football i could get my hands on i'd have Storm or Niagara Falls telling me you got to buy up all the 91 Pacific football and put it away. Take every nickel you have and buy that. Yeah, that'd have been a. I was a glass half empty guy then. I'm glad I was because that would have yeah. been a bad idea. <laughs> okay, I want to I want to shift over to NILs for a moment. Now, this is the name and image likeness uh, deals that collegiate athletes are now eligible to sign and, and make money on. And it's not a topic that I have found all that interesting for me personally as a collector. But in our pre-talk, you you shared a, a, a an angle on this, or you know, a, a theory, a, a thought that kind of made it very interesting to me. Now, so I want you to, um, if you can, just sort of talk about nil deals, 
their potential impact and any sort of threat they may pose to uh, to other parts of the hobby. Mm-hmm. I, I think when people, uh, uh, when I talk to other dealers and collectors, when we talk about NIL deals, um, a lot of the concern I hear expressed with NIL deals is, oh, all these guys will have all these early rookie cards and everything like that. And so, you know, when Panini and Tops or whoever make the cards, they'll have already had these cards and, and, and that'll hurt. And I was like, well, no, because people are always going to want the first Tops card or Bowman card. And sometimes or the first national treasures RPA, it doesn't matter what somebody made two years ago. When you, when you look at it that way, I, I don't, I don't worry about that. What I do worry about is, is um, I worry about it. Let's, let's call it the Calvin Johnson effect. So Calvin Johnson was rookie in 2007. Calvin Johnson's person, the parents had a lot of money. He wasn't poor. His parents, I don't know, they might have had a million dollars. So Calvin Johnson didn't need the money, didn't want to sign autographs. Really hard. He, he wanted $100 an autograph in 2007. That's crazy. So he didn't sign a lot of autographs as a rookie. But that's not normal. Normally, your basketball and your football and, and, and even your baseball and your hockey rookies, these are not kids who come from money, especially in football and basketball. The first big paycheck they ever get is from the card companies. First big one, because they're getting deals for cards done and they're getting payments before they're even drafted in many cases. So there's a, there's a kid and, uh, you know, he's grown up, didn't have any money. He's a third pick overall. And he's going to get a half a million dollars to sign cards. I mean, that's an unbelievable amount of money. Now, eventually, they start getting team paychecks and they get tired of signing. And sometimes you got to chase after them. And that's when redemption cards start to appear, you know, because now they're making more money. Now they've got to deal with Subway or they've got to deal with, you know, whoever. Now they're actually starting Nike in some case. They're starting to get other money. But a lot of times the first big paycheck any young athlete gets his entire life is from the card company. Now, now, your top young prospects in football and basketball could be millionaires when they come out of college. Paige Buecher is a UConn. I know she just blew out her knee or whatever. She's going to be a multi-millionaire when she comes out of college. Now, I don't want to segue to WNBA, but she comes out. You probably want, if you collect WNBA, you probably want prism autographs of her. She's a multi-millionaire. What's her incentive to sign now for $25 an autograph or whatever it happens to be? She already has all the money in the world, more money than maybe she ever thought she'd had as a young person. So you're going to have these top college athletes or high school athletes in some cases coming out with tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even potentially millions of dollars. And you're Panini. You go to this kid and say, hey, I'm going to sign 20,000 autographs for 10 bucks a piece. What do you think they're going to say? They'd say no. And then where are we? And I don't think people have really thought it from that perspective. Now, I know that the people, the card companies are thinking it because it's terrifying. How do you make flawless basketball? How do you make National Treasures football? Half the rookies just don't want to be bothered with signing autographs. And what happens to the prices of those products, the cost of those products, if you have to pay a bunch of millionaires to sign cards, to have them in your product. And in that case, look, I love Han Solo cards in Star Wars, right? Han Solo gets $1,000 an autograph. Sorry, Harrison Ford gets $1,000 an autograph. It's 
So Tops might do like 100 cards in a year. So if you got these kids and they want like $200 to sign an autograph, maybe they'll do 1,000. That 1,000 has got to be spread across 30 or 40 products or 50 products or whatever it is. So what happens to how does the game change for the manufacturers and acquiring autographs when these kids come out of school with so much money? And I don't think that most people in our industry really see that coming. Um, but I can tell you that card manufacturers absolutely see that coming. And it's why brands like Prism should be just fine. It's not a lot of autographs. Brands like UD1, if we want to throw hockey in there, it's not a lot of autographs. You just print that. But your flawlesses, your treasures, your cup hockey, all those types of things can all change over the next few years as your rookies come out rich out of college. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an it's a great uh, thought that um, it's a great insight, you know, into what what the the advent of these nil deals could could mean for for yeah. cards. So it's not only something that Panini and Tops needs to worry about right now, but Fanatics as well needs to have have this in mind as they move forward, right? I mean, yeah, yeah there's another glass half full comment by me, boy. I'm, I sound super pessimistic. No. no, but it's just it's just it's just the it's just the math. It's the economics of the it's situation. You're just being realistic too. You're you know you're you're looking at the you're looking at the the environment and the landscape in which we're in, and you're trying to predict what can happen. And uh, again, you're that that particular situation is one that I hadn't thought of. I do I wouldn't know to think of that. So I found it really interesting and insightful. And um, something to think about as we watch the next couple of years unfold and, you know, maybe having to, we're going to have people asking questions. Why isn't, why isn't this Bronny James? Why can't you get his autograph? Well, I mean, because he's worth a billion dollars or his family is, he doesn't need the money. Are there, is he going to bother signing autographs? I mean, who knows? You may not, but I, but at the same time, products like Prism, Upper Deck Series 1, Series 2 can keep on coming out uh, unscathed. Jeremy, Bronny James, uh, uh, so his, his dad's LeBron. You know who LeBron's agent is, right? Who? Well, you know, Rich Paul, that, that group of guys. You know, if if Bronny James signs for him, he's probably for Upper Deck. How does that do us any good? Yeah, there you go, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> LeBron only signs for Upper Deck because that's the group that he's with. That's where they, you know, that's where oh, they good. Those, those autographs go. Good for Upper Deck. Yeah. Then. Hey. So you're gonna have Bronny James in Goodwin, but he's not gonna be in, you know, he's not gonna be in immaculate basketball. Yeah. How does that? How does that help any of us? Yeah. No, I I, I hear you, but yeah. uh, gives Upper Deck an ace up their sleeve, I guess. Um, okay. No, that that's interesting stuff. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Again, it comes with being as uh, you know involved in the hobby as you are for all the years, and uh, and what what you're doing. You've definitely got your your finger on the pulse of the hobby. I'm going to go to a couple comments here, man. We're going to going to try and get you out at the two hour mark. I'm glad you've lasted this long. So I'm going to run through a couple questions that are coming in. If you want to just sort of speak to this one quick, Adam, based on what you're seeing with prices for hobby boxes, do you have any predictions for a price point for 2022 World Cup Prism? Boy, that's a great question because, uh, boy, the 2014 and 2018 are a ton of money. Um I think the SRP on it is something like 350. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not. Don't don't hold me to that. Um, might it be a thousand? That's probably high. 
seven or eight hundred we might see. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of demand there is for it. Did we see a checklist? I don't want to stick my neck out there. I thought I, I don't think that EPL Prism performed great last year. So, but I think World Cup is this whole nother stage. Um, could it be a thousand? Maybe. Yeah. I'm wondering what WWE Prism is going to be. Yeah. That going to be a thousand? Look what UFC did. Is WWE Prism going to be a thousand dollar box or going to be a five hundred dollar box? So I think World Cup could. I'm I'm never surprised by the initial price points of some items yeah. that the market begins at. I'm never surprised when something scales up like this. I'm never surprised when something comes comes crashing down anymore. I've been doing this for too long. But I would think in the high hundreds of dollars is probably where that will start just based upon how the previous World Cup Prism products have, have performed. People are going to put that away. Yeah. People are going to put that away. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on how crypto for payments and purchases in the hobby will evolve. Are we you take guys... Bitcoin. Yeah. We take Bitcoin as a method of payment. However, it is it is converted into dollars in like one second and hits your account as dollars at the end of the day, just like it would be a regular credit card transaction. Um, I, I find it interesting that a lot, of the, a lot of the new dollars that have come into this business, I keep saying Wall Street. But sneakerheads, uh, crypto guys, right? I mean, when crypto went up and it's come down and moves all around, you know, we can see how it changes, how much of our payments are in Bitcoin, how much Bitcoin we take in. You know, when it jumps up over 60,000, suddenly we get a big influx of Bitcoin and goes back down. Guys, hang on to it. Right. Or buy more or whatever, the, the, big, the big crypto guys. So uh, professional poker players. They've come out of the woodwork and become card guys. So it's interesting. But um, so I think that uh, I watched South Park the other night and they predict that crypto would be the only way to pay for things in 30 years. So maybe that's maybe that's going to happen. That's all we're going to take someday. Right. But I'm not sure. That's a good question. I don't have a great answer for that. All right. Let's go to the next one. Bob's Big Boy says uh, Dave and Adams used to partner with Panini on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Father's Day packs. Will those promotions ever kick back in, or is it a thing of the past? Well, that's a good question. So uh, just like anybody out there who needs to buy a, like a new refrigerator, or uh, my wife ordered a couch 11 months ago, might show up someday. Um, it is the hardest thing in the world right now is for companies to get cards printed. Now, when you talk about Upper Deck, Upper Deck 1 isn't out yet. It might not be out until next year. And how does that affect the hockey count? I mean, these companies, you think about how much demand there is for cards and they can't get it printed. And when you can't get things printed, promotions like Black Friday and Cyber Monday packs and those things, they it's either print those or or produce gold standard football. The gold standard football is going to win out every time. So there's just not enough print time, paper, foil uh, to to produce what the demand is there for, uh, is there for, and therefore it's very very challenging to produce anything promotionally that goes beyond just simple ink and paper, like national, you know, hockey card day. That's just ink and paper, you know, yeah. and so. Um, and so I don't think we'll see the really higher end promotional packs like Panini National, Panini Black Friday uh, packs, uh, Panini Father's Day packs until until they solve production issues. Makes sense. Makes sense. Supply chain needs to 
catch up. Uh, another question from Bob, Bob's Big Boy. How heavily do you guys track redemption checklists and expiration dates? Will there come a time when Fanatics starts taking over that sealed Panini product with redemptions? Mm. Um, we're terrible at tracking uh, <laughs> redemptions. Uh, I can't tell you all the big deals we've bought. And then uh, we say, hey, we're going to bleed this out. And then somebody says, you know, hey, Austin Matthews is a redemption. And we go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it expires in three weeks. You know, so um, I, I'd like to think we've gotten a little better at it. But I couldn't tell you for current releases who's a redemption, who isn't. Outside of that, maybe that Joe Burrow comment I made about national treasures because someone told me. Uh, so um I don't do a great job tracking. Maybe we should, but we, we try to put it on the website to be informative about it. Uh, but sometimes we don't know until the product really comes live. And then you have to go back and amend your product descriptions. So we probably actually as a company could do a better job at it. And the likelihood of fanatics taking over redemptions for Panini is zero in my mind. Um, it would be great if they did something. Um, but if they... I mean, if they purchased Panini and, and and kept Panini operational as Panini and didn't move that, it just didn't take the brands. They bought the whole company, the whole team, the whole warehouse, the whole operation. Yeah, maybe they continue it. But if they just buy it for some of the people in the brands and they take those people and they and those and they pick them up and they drop them in another state somewhere, I would I would guess the odds are zero. Uh, but I hopefully. You know, that's not good for this industry. So hopefully that they do something. Um, I wonder if they're even thinking about that. Maybe. I wonder. I mean, we we as a hobby, we hope because we are the hobby and it hurts us if it doesn't happen. However, what company voluntarily takes on another company's contingent liabilities? It's just not it's just it's just bad. It's, it's bad business from the finance perspective the short-term you know accounting finance department perspective yeah. but the visionary the visionary might say well no this is something we need to do it's a it's a huge goodwill generator yeah. for us and this could be the best thing we ever do so it really depends who's making those calls are they the are they the accountants or are they the visionaries mm -hmm. and um hopefully it's the visionaries because the accountants will get it wrong can you imagine a a, a big company like fanatics so if you're a if you're if you're a customer service specialist at Panini or Tops or something right now or Upper Deck, your day is talking to people on the phone and you're saying this guy's never going to sign again because he doesn't have hands anymore from a freak lawnmower accident. So I can't give you this guy. Maybe I can give you this guy, and they haggle with the collector on the phone to try to take care of him or via email. Can you imagine fanatics doing that? On that scale, having people whose jobs it is is to haggle over, to negotiate redemption swaps. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe you have to if you if you have a card company, but I think that they'll probably find a a, a better a, a better way. Um, I mean, Panini tried to do it with points, just throw points in for everything, yeah. and I, I think it I think it succeeded to some extent, but I, but at the same time, uh, to, yeah, to take another company's liabilities like that is. I don't, I don't necessarily see it, but from a marketing perspective, it would be a nice, nice gesture. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, even, even I said before that, you know, the accountants will get it wrong, but is it really, is it really wrong uh, to take, is it really wrong to not take it on? It's a tough, it's a tough, I'm, I, you know, tough. 
in a way, and a part of me says, I'm glad I don't have to make the decision, but another part of me says, I'd love to be able to make that decision. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. I want to ask you this question and then, uh, we may, we're probably going to wrap this up uh, pretty quick here, Adam. Do you think that fanatics could do a royalty deal with tops slash Panini for them to make licensed product? Mm. that's a great question i think that they could i i don't i'd have to look at the agreements that exist right now between fanatics and the leagues these these new agreements that are in place to know if that's even a possibility but i tend to believe that fanatics will do everything in-house um, once that, once those operations are fully developed, I don't think that that will happen. Um, it's actually something that personally would be great to see happen so that, you know, some of the friends that I've made over the years at Tops and Panini, you know, might be able to keep their positions. But um, I think that, I think that likely Fanatics will want to do things in-house. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. That's it, man. We're, we're going to wrap this up. I, I appreciate your time. We're just over two hours. Um, I'm excited. I'm going to, we're going to see each other. You will be at the Mint Collective at oh. the end of January. Is that correct? I will. Yeah. It's going to be great. Should be are a lot you, of fun. Are you, are you looking forward to this thing? I'm looking forward to leaving Buffalo at the end of uh, January and going to Vegas. Yes, I am. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> well, it's on the ticker right, uh, right now there. Uh, Las Vegas, January 28th to 30th. I'll be there. Adam Martin will be there. A bunch of you guys will be there. So I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up a couple of final Troy. Thanks for the live stream. Thanks Adam for spending time with all of us. Hobby peeps. Great Joe. Thank you. Troy Skeppy. Appreciate, appreciates the answers, Adam. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. Skeppy. Okay. Any final comments, anything you want to, you want to leave us with Adam before we, uh, I hit end broadcast, which my mouse is hovering over right now. Mouse is hovering over in broadcast. No, thank you for having me on. Uh, if we, if you have me on again, maybe I'll be a glasses half full guy, and we'll have a whole different, a whole different conversation. How's that? So Talk we will me. get, we will get you back on. That's a commitment, right? Yeah, sure. Hey, man, I was impressed. I got you on this first time. <laughs> I don't do a lot of these, Jeremy, but I like you a lot, man. So uh, it was hard to say no to you. I so, appreciate that. So, but I'm, I had grateful. I'm grateful. The audience is grateful, Adam. Uh, thank you so much. We got, yeah, thank you, James. Terrific show. Appreciate it. Joe, thank you so much. Ken, we'll see you in Vegas, definitely. Yeah. Rage, thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew Jones. Another great interview. Learned so much. Thanks for sharing. That's awesome. All right, guys. That's it for tonight. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Adam, for uh, for being here and for bringing more viewers to the show. If you're new to Sports Cards Live, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Every Saturday night, we do this. We will see you all next Saturday. And if you're around tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern, I will be on Collectibles' YouTube channel called Collectible App. And uh, we'll be doing the Collectible Live show tomorrow, 7 o'clock Eastern. Be sure to tune into that. Adam, you hang tight right there. Eric, I'm going to go watch the game now. Hopefully the Flames can catch up in the third. Everyone, good night. Have a great, great week ahead. Adam, hang tight. Thanks, everybody. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.